Here at Solutions Media and the Game Changer Network, we are saddened by the passing of Sarah Caldecott-Miller. We know that Sarah is now celebrating her life legacy in the company of angels, and we are all better for knowing her. The following interview with Sarah was recorded on March 24th, 2009, and we hope you enjoy our rebroadcast. I don't mind if you got something nice to say about me. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So how are things in Dearborn, Michigan? Well, we have a sunny day here, but it is cold again. We thought that spring had arrived with those uh, 40 and 50 degree temperatures, but we're back down in the 20s today, so a little chilly. That's the thing about being up north. That's why they call it up north. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to spend the rest of my days south of the Mason-Dixon line, (laughs) because I grew up in Wisconsin and uh, had my fill of spring days with snow. Well, I'm from Wisconsin also, and I know exactly what you're talking about. um, We didn't discover that about each other. (laughs) I did live in Florida, like you, for many years, and uh, just loved that time, because the tropics are out of this world. It really is like living in paradise. Definitely. Well, Sarah, I want to just dive right in because um, I am just so excited about having you on the show. And, you know, first I'd like uh, just to get a little background, um, you know, in, in the intro uh, that, that I did for you on, on the promotion for the show, I did talk about your relationship to Edison, who you've written about in your book. But you, yes. have, you have a number of inventors in your family. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> kind so of an unusual us, heritage. <laughs> yeah, just give us the thumbnail because the whole the whole point of our show is really talking about how to leave a legacy but you know quite often we have on people like you who actually are living a legacy so tell us about that sure well my great great grandfather um and that goes back about five generations was an inventor he invented agricultural equipment his name was lewis miller he had 92 patents and 11 children so he was wow. a very busy guy. But, uh, that focused, was his life. <laughs> yeah, right, very busy life. And he uh, focused on ways for farming to be more efficient. Uh, so most of his uh, inventions uh, were ways of eliminating labor, steps that laborers had to take to come into the field and do certain things. So, for example, one of his inventions allowed grain that had been cut in the field to be automatically bound up into a sheaf as the farmer was cutting the grain. So that was a very important labor-saving device and uh, became very profitable and popular. And he also invented an arm, a mechanical arm, some years later for the farmer to actually reach down and pick up the bound sheaf of grain and put it in the cart behind him. So those modifications ultimately led to the combine harvester, which we see in the fields now, those big, huge machines that you know, go through and in one pass do everything. Right. So it's kind of interesting that back in the 1850s and 1860s and 70s, these things were happening, but just in a very different way on a different scale. So uh, that was my great-great-grandfather's generation. One of his children, Mina, married Thomas Edison. Uh, I mentioned the 11 children. She was child number seven, 
and uh, her older brother, child number five, was my great-grandfather. So uh, that's how I am a great-grandniece of Thomas Edison. Um, And, of course, Edison had an extraordinary number of inventions, over a 1,000 patents, and developed six industries over the course of his lifetime uh, in about a 40-year span. So a very amazing um, accomplishment for anyone. Uh, My grandfather was an inventor at a company called Pittsburgh Plate Glass, or PPG, uh, which still exists today. Uh, he was a chemist, and he invented shatterproof glass. Hmm. So um, it was called Herculite. That was the brand name, if you will. And it was first introduced into the windshields of Chrysler automobiles. So that's where it first showed, and uh, then later was put into airports and revolving doors, office buildings. So all of us have benefited from the safety features of shatterproof glass. So those are some of the inventors in my in my family. Wow, wow. So tell us what got you to the place where you wanted to write a book. Because when you and I spoke, you, you talked about how there were so many books uh, actually written about Thomas Edison. Yes. But most of them were historical in nature right. and, and not really looking at it from the business perspective. That's right. Um, Over 70 books have been written about Thomas Edison. Some were written during his lifetime. He uh, was born in 1847, died in 1931 at the age of 84. Uh, And so in the last 20, 30 years of Edison's life, people did write about him. But since that time, we have not really heard much from business people about Edison's accomplishments. Uh, And in fact, um, the book that I wrote is really the first book to look at Edison's process, his innovation methods. The historian is more interested in looking at what Edison did, and I was actually wanting to know how he did it. So I think the the business perspective is um, a way to have us look at what can we apply from Edison's unique methods today, because a lot of these are timeless. So um, this is really why Innovate Like Edison is a more unique look at what Edison accomplished, uh, because it shows us how he was so successful. That's a wonderful story. This is Chris. Good morning. Hi, Chris. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. I'm so happy that you chose to do that. And it must have been a fascinating process getting into that because you could read all these other books and put him in historical context of why that was the challenge he chose to pick up or whatever. But how did he go about that process? So you came up with um, a number of steps. Is that the way you kind of filtered it down for yourself? Well, what was happening as I started doing my research, this was back in 2004, um, I started seeing patterns in what Edison was doing. And as someone who has spent uh, about 15 years developing products and launching brands, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., I was very familiar with this process of starting with an idea and then going all the way out to implementing the idea. And that's what Edison was, of course, doing for for so much of his career. Um, So these steps that you're talking about, um, I started seeing patterns, and I called them competencies, the five competencies of innovation. And within each of these competencies, there are sort of mini building blocks so that by mastering the building blocks, we then create 
a capability to do something bigger and something more powerful. Uh, the competencies focus on things like um, developing new solutions, uh, coming up with robust ideas, putting teams together in a powerful way that helps them work more effectively, um, connecting ideas to markets, and also creating a, a workplace culture that is conducive to innovation. That's one of the biggest challenges I think we face today is how do we make our, our work environment um, streamlined and focused on the innovation process. So that's sort of a, a highlight of what those five competencies talk about. So your competencies, if applied by the corporation, are really kind of creating an infrastructure almost that supports innovation. Yes, that's a really great way to think about it. Um, you know, having infrastructure in place is so critical for any of us to accomplish what we want to do, whether it's financial in nature, um, whether it has, relates to manufacturing, uh, whether it relates to a service development. Having infrastructure that supports your goals and your vision is critical. So when you, when more, a lot of companies, one might think of 3M, for example, and we think that they've created that kind of environment. And then you look at other companies, and it's more like there's a skunk works or a little team who's authorized to kind of be creative in a sense. Right. And people in what you might consider the maintenance side of the organization instead are um, feeling like, well, we just have to kind of keep this old stuff going and don't think of it. Is that, is that a good way of thinking about companies who have and haven't done it? Or could you share some, I don't know, sure. typical mistakes? Well, actually, 3M um, has done a lot of work trying to understand its own culture and how that ah. culture is innovative or is not innovative. So what did they um, accidentally do? Well, you know, it really wasn't accidental. They, they okay. tried to study it and use some methods and techniques to do that. Um, there are some good ways of looking at companies no matter uh, what industry you might be in. Uh, and it, it has to do with the percentage of your employees who have various qualities. The first thing to look for is whether an individual is more of an adapter or an innovator. Uh, the adapter is a person who is interested in taking something that already exists and making it better. So to your point about, hey, we've got this stuff that exists, um, you know, we've got to keep it going, we've got to keep it profitable, those are the kinds of questions that often the adapter is very strong at solving. Uh, the innovator is a person who typically wants to make something new, make something that doesn't exist yet. This is probably what we associate more with innovation, quote-unquote, right, that newness. Right. But um, th those individuals need to be uh, put within that infrastructure we were just talking about. Uh, it is true that sometimes it feels like there's these random people and they're randomly working on these new things. So it's the job of the innovator to try to communicate what he or she is working on in a way that can connect 
and um, you know, be supported by the rest of the organization. Now, you used the word skunk works just a moment ago, and it is true that 3M has some groups that are very much on the leading edge, right? Those innovators who are out there making something new, developing a new technology that, boy, they don't even know quite what to do with it yet, right? Right. So it doesn't have a business purpose yet. Yeah, it, it may or may not, and it may develop a business pers- purpose after it's been uh, invented, if you will, or perfected. So this is why it's important, uh, especially in companies that are technically oriented or do have a technology function, that you have those um, kind of blue sky projects that are happening in some area of the company, because often that's where the key new insights show up. So even if the actual initiative that someone's working on may not be business uh, have have a business result, something that flows from it can. So this is what 3M has realized. So they allow people out there in that innovation uh, portion of their business to kind of work without a lot of uh, parameters like, okay, you've got to deliver, you know, $300 million in revenue in three years. Um, so they allow some of this to just evolve and flow forward. What's critical is that the adapters and the innovators, whom I was just talking about, also can connect to other people in the organization because not everybody is um, primarily an adapter or an innovator. Some people are really good implementers, for example. They can go and make something happen. They could be salespeople. Uh, They could be in finance. Uh, There are people who are clarifiers. That's another role that's very important. Clarifying through language, clarifying through maybe putting a business plan together, for example. Clarifying through what are the resources that you need and how can I help you um, bring those resources into the infrastructure. So there are multiple roles, and I'm I'm not even really going through all of them, but um, this just gives you a flavor for the importance of knowing kind of how you are wired, if you are an adapter, if you are a clarifier, and so on, because this helps reduce conflict. That's one of the classic mistakes that companies make, is that they have people working in a function, if you will, that goes against their own tendencies or goes against their own wiring. So that can be a challenge. Mm, That's very interesting. Um, I need to take just a quick break here to acknowledge our our new sponsor uh, for Solutions Live. Uh, And and actually, this is a very interesting one, Sarah. You might want to check these folks out. It's a group called Guru Nation, G-U-R-U-N-A-T. ION.com, Guru Nation. And, and it really is the ultimate knowledge network for professionals who want to learn more and stand out and, and lead effectively. And I would also, uh, you know, add to innovate. And it, it is a professional community that is designed to ignite thinking and provide invaluable skill building and create access to hundreds of seasoned industry experts outside of your organization who are willing to share their knowledge and, and open uh, important doors. And, you know, I think as we look at innovation, I mean, you've just spent some time talking about culture, and, and I think you've already talked about the whole issue of how conflicts can come up uh, in an organization if people don't recognize where they fit in each yes. of those categories. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how an organization can manage those conflicts? Sure. Well, the leadership body of the organization is critical in setting the tone 
for how conflict is going to be resolved and also how resources are going to be brought forward. This is one of the most important things that a leadership body can do. In many instances, leaders get where they are through being adapters, um, through looking at best practices, quote-unquote. And having a best practices approach tends to be more of a show-me-how-it's-done approach as opposed to I'm going to go out and make the changes myself approach. So the leadership of an organization tends to be less um, forward-looking and less mobile than other parts of the company. So if the leadership team can realize this and say, okay, our role is going to be to facilitate our role is going to be to look at these projects and fund them and help keep things moving because we are going to be the centerpiece. We are going to be the, the point around which everything else revolves. So helping to reduce conflict can come when the leadership team is offering resources, access, and time. When everything has to flow up to one central point all the time, you, you run into conflicts and bottlenecks because you just can't get enough meetings. You just can't get on people's calendars. So bringing decision-making authority out into the project teams themselves is another key thing that the leadership team or leadership body can do. That way, you don't have this kind of command and control process that always has to rule every single decision. This is what Edison did. He allowed the teams that he um, brought together more autonomy in making decisions and moving forward, and when they get to a critical point, then he would give them his time, and he would help them troubleshoot. So that is a way that organizations can reduce conflict by allowing the teams a little bit more autonomy and ensuring that they have a diverse, a number, diverse groups of people brought together so you've got skill sets on each team that help the team continue to move forward. Apple does this extremely well. Google does this extremely well. Um, and again, this is a, a model that we can look to Edison uh, for more guidance on. You know, this is interesting because I think we think of Edison as a lone wolf. Right. And I think that's a classic myth of American invention. Yeah. Uh, you know, we look back historically over decades and decades and decades, and we do have this notion of, you know, an individual or, say, two guys laboring together in the garage or laboring right. in their laboratory uh, in isolation. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Edison well, you always... write a thousand patents. Yes, <laughs> right. Well, and he established over 150 companies. Wow. He had thousands of employees. Um, many of them were in manufacturing operations making his inventions. So he had light bulb factories, he had wiring facilities, he had um, uh, groups that were making generators and dynamos, and of course the phonograph, which he invented in 1877. He invented the movies in 1893. So he had all of these companies making his products. So this is where we can also see this notion of the diversity of skill sets that's required to keep an innovation or innovation-driven company moving forward. 
So uh, it isn't all just about, um, hey, what can I do on my own? It's how can I take my ideas and connect them in to uh, the network of my company and, you know, make the, the greatest impact. That's that's absolutely really fascinating, and the fact that um, he wasn't alone. He was, if you will, simply that generation's version of the corporations that we're currently trying to deal with and live in now. And um, so if you were to look at all of these things, um, how do you go about putting, you know, putting this together and where do, where do companies usually make the most mistakes? Well, I think companies make the most mistakes in, number one, creating teams of people that don't have all the skill sets that they need to be successful. I was talking about those mindsets earlier, you know, the adapter, the innovator, the clarifier, and so on. That's one of the classic mistakes is that you may have a lot of people who are either focusing on adaptation uh, put together so that the risk orientation is lower, uh, when the company really wants something that's breakthrough. So <laughs> until you find those individuals who are more willing to leap forward um, and the organization needs to be willing to support those folks, um, that's when the breakthroughs will happen. We could look at the Razor phone at Motorola, which was developed several years ago, as a great example of a company that actually formed a specific team with diverse skill sets. Um, it was a small team at first, uh, roughly five to eight people. It expanded to roughly 15 people at one point. But ultimately, it wasn't that big. It wasn't 30 people, 50 people, 100 people. It was a small group of people who had the right mix of talents to um, develop a completely new phone and look at that entire cell phone market differently. So uh, one of the classic mistakes is is putting the wrong skill sets together. Now, sec- if, go, oh, ahead, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just, if you're one of those people, right, you're, you're, we're the individuals listening in, and, you know, maybe there's a few of the people here who are leadership people. Yes. So how do we figure out which of those people we are? I mean, your book is more about how the corporation needs to create the steps of infrastructure, right? Well, there is actually um, a little mini quiz in the book, in the back. Uh, There are 100 questions that you can go through and and take uh, take this little little test, if you will, and see where you come out, Uh, see where you where you fall on each of the five competencies. So it will show you uh, if you have more of a solution orientation, um, how you are in terms of your, your team skills, how you like to connect your ideas to uh, you know, value creation structures. It can be very telling in, in where you're strong and where you might have opportunity areas. Um, one other way that you can determine uh, your own capabilities is to see who you hang out with. You know, see whom you would consider to be like-minded individuals to yourself. Um, Are they ideators? Are they developers? Are they implementers? Are they uh, innovators? So this is where sort of social networking, if you will, comes into play. Who do I most like to connect with? You can look at that pool of people as uh, a way to kind of reflect um, your own qualities. So uh, that's another way to gain some insight 
uh, you know, birds of a feather flock together, that, that old saying, right. but, uh, know, that Sarah, can help occurs, us look at that. It occurs to me, though, that that might be one of the things that holds people back, because to get to true innovation, it sounds like you need a balance of some of yes. these things. So if you're an, an innovator that hangs out with a whole bunch of other innovators and there's nobody around who can implement and clarify um, you you may never be able to get out of that cycle of, of kind of the dream cycle, uh, yes. you know, that, that is a part of that. Well, in, in the last couple of minutes, and, and I knew that this half hour was going to go by way <laughs> too fast, so we're going to have to find a way to have you back on and, and uh, to dig into this a little bit deeper. But out of those five comp- competencies of innovation, do you have one that stands out as, as the most important? And then when, when you're finished with that, I'd like for you to quickly tell people how to get a hold of your book and how to get a hold of you. Sure. Um, I would have to say that of the five competencies, the first one is probably the most important. That's the solution-centered mindset. Uh, this is the place where an individual uh, establishes their relationship with the future. Because solutions in the world of innovation lie in the future. They don't lie typically with tomorrow. They lie with a year from now, 18 months, two years, or three years. Now, of course, we work toward the solutions, um, and we sometimes only have 90 days to do things. But the important thing for the innovator is to develop a relationship with the future and start to create an ability to think in nonlinear ways not always in terms of linear time. This is what Edison uh, developed as a skill set. This is where his experimentation was so critical. Um, As people in the modern world, we need to be able to hold multiple options in our minds at the same time and not always feel um, driven to pick one. Uh, immediately. Uh, This is what Edison was very skilled at doing because he allowed solutions to emerge rather than forcing the solutions. So by using the other competencies, we start to enhance this capability, but the solution-centered mindset is really the place to begin that exercise. So no matter if you're an adapter, a clarifier, uh, and so on, it's it's a very important skill set to have. Well, that's great, Sarah. And your company is called Power Patterns. That's right. And, and I'm sorry, go ahead. And, that's all right. And just let them know where they can reach you and, uh, again, the name of your book. Sure. Um, I can be reached on my website, which is powerpatterns.com, P-O-W-E-R-P-A-T-T-E-R-N-S.com. And it's also the same website as my name, sarahcaldicott.com, S-A-R-A-H-C-A-L-D-I-C-O-T-T.com. Those refer to the same page. Um, My book is called Innovate Like Edison, The Five-Step System, for Breakthrough Business Success. And the book is available on Amazon. It's available at Borders, at Barnes & Noble, and um, all kinds of independent booksellers across the country. So you can really um, get it any way that you most prefer. Great. Yes, we also have a link to it on uh, both the blogtalkradio.com site and also uh, solutionslive.blogspot.com. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. 
so, so much. And clearly, we've got a lot more to talk to you about, so we will definitely have to circle back. And uh, maybe maybe when your award uh, uh, is is uh, a little bit more gelled we will get together and talk about that that sounds terrific well thank you i'd love to speak with you again anytime thank you very much have a terrific day sarah okay thanks to both of you okay great bye you've been listening to the game changer ideas inspiration innovation with chickie fitzgerald (music) 